Welcome to Shi'ar Jeshub, a Bible study program featuring the ministry of Pastor Greg Scalzo. Hi, I'm Patty Scalzo, and along with the Church Fellowship of Shi'ar Jeshub Christian Tabernacle in Madison, Connecticut, we invite you to join us as my husband continues his Through the Bible series on Heavenly Authority. Today, we will be continuing a sermon that focuses on the Jerusalem Council recorded in Acts chapter 15. The dispute which this Jewish council addressed was whether the Gentile believers in Jesus were required to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. When we left off, Pastor Greg had finished reading the Apostle Peter's powerful address where he relates how God made no distinction when he directed Peter to preach to the Gentiles, but purified their hearts by faith, saving them in the same manner as the Jewish believers. Here now is the author of The Nature and Power of Prayer, Pastor Greg Scalzo. And doesn't that same clear logic go through the letters of 1 Peter and 2 Peter, beautiful letters, epistles to read? Jesus foreknew him. He was called for a time like this. And what is the result in verse 12? Then all the multitude kept silent. There's a hush. There's a clear teaching of the Word of God, a clear, simple analysis Logic that cannot be contested, and it quiets the debate. The room becomes quiet. There's a hush in the room, and what does it say? They kept silent, the multitude, and listened to Barnabas and Paul, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. It provides the opportunity now. Now that they remember they're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by the ceremonial law, there's a quiet and it gives an opportunity. Barnabas and Paul have a fair hearing. They can tell of all the works, and you can imagine the zeal that Paul and Barnabas, when they're telling about the miracles that happened among the Gentiles, their apostleship, right? What they were called, sent out to do. And you notice in here how it all works together how it all should work together. This gives a tremendous, this council gives a tremendous template of how it should work. In verse 13, and after they had become silent, when Paul and Barnabas stopped speaking, James answered, saying, men and brethren, again he calls them brothers, listen to me. Now James, Paul calls an apostle in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 19. I think the scriptures, I'm not going to go through them today, clearly show he is the half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary with Joseph. James, after he didn't believe Jesus during his earthly life, he sees the risen Lord, he is saved, and having been with them at Pentecost, receives the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and he rises to become a leader, an overseer, really the chief overseer in the church at Jerusalem, at that Jerusalem church. He's, he seems to be the central elder there. And just like Peter, he says, men and brethren. He doesn't say, I'm Jesus' half-brother, right? 
They're all brethren. And he says in verse 14, Simon has declared, meaning Peter, how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. So you have a chosen people being called among the Gentiles. James totally agrees with what Peter has said. Sometimes people try to read a controversy in here when I don't think it's really there. Simon has declared how God at first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. He's saying what Peter is saying to you, Scripture agrees with. So we know it's true. Think of it. You have the clear wisdom of the fishermen, Holy Spirit anointed. You have the zealous recounting of Barnabas and Paul. And now you have the calm scriptural analysis of James, who resorts to Scripture, all coming to the same conclusion. And God uses that. He will use the different persons and their different callings to bring about a consensus that they know is from the Holy Spirit. He says, what Peter says about these Gentiles, the word of God agrees. He says, and with this, the words of the prophets agree. Verse 15, just as it is written, Verse 16, after this I will return and re rebuild, rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name. He's calling a people to his own by the name of Jesus says the Lord who does all these things. That's verse 17, and that's from Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. And then verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. God knows the beginning from the end, James is saying. He knows all he's going to do, and he's prophesied in the scriptures that God says he's going to save these Gentiles. He's going to call them out. They don't have to be made Jews. They don't have to, because you could be a convert to Judaism in those days. You did not have to be a flesh descendant of Abraham to be a Jew in the flesh. If you converted, if you got circumcised, you can now be in the covenant of Israel, the covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the flesh. But he's saying they don't have to do that. He's pulling a people for himself out of the Gentiles. God knows, God from eternity knows all he's going to do. He knows the beginning, he knows the end, and he has prophesied by the prophets that he's going to call the Gentiles as well. We don't have to make them Jews. What Peter is saying, what Simon is saying, agrees with what Amos has said. So James is in agreement with Paul and Barnabas and Peter. Verse 19 Therefore, I judge. Now, he gives his judgment. He gives what he feels should be done. I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. Don't put any other burden. Don't make the ceremonial law something they have to do. Certainly, it's not going to save us. Don't put them under circumcision. We should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God. And that's basically what Peter said. We couldn't handle the burden ourselves, and now you're going to put it on them? Verse 20, but we write to them, I judge that we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, 
and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So don't trouble them. Don't make them get circumcised. Don't make the ceremonial law be imposed upon them. Just three important points. They should abstain from things polluted by idols, idolatry. Now, we know from the letter of Paul that if you go to the marketplace and you don't know where the food is from, you're giving thanks to God, and you don't have to worry about it like somehow that you're polluted by that. You're seeing that food is coming from God. But you should not be a participant in idolatry. Paul writes... In uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Paul, who teaches the gospel of grace, not by works, says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19, What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to an idol is anything? And rhetorically, you know, the answer is no. That's nonsense. Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now, someone could take that scripture and make an argument. Gee, it sounds like he's making a work for salvation. He's placing them under the law. No, you're saved by grace. But if you're saved by grace of Jesus Christ, why would you want to have any part with idolatry? And if you do want to have part with idolatry, something's not right in your salvation to begin with. And so Paul can say, flee from idolatry, and say it clearly, just like James says here, that they should abstain from that which is polluted by idols. He says, abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality. Well, anyone that knows the Old Covenant and the New knows that idolatry and sexual immorality are two big things in the sight of God that you do well not to do. Otherwise, you are testing God. As Paul says, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? This is not a gospel of grace, meaning God doesn't care what you do. You can do anything Jesus just loves you, and he doesn't care. You can do anything you want. There's no right. There's no wrong. We're saved by grace. Really, what do we need to be saved from? Because there's no right and there's no wrong. And so you have modern churches that won't even say you need to be saved. Somehow Jesus is involved, but there's no right and there's no wrong. Grace has been so perverted and twisted. Grace means there is a right, there is a wrong. Human nature is terribly sinful. You see the pagan nations, you see the idolatry, you see the sexual morality, how they twisted the good things that God has given to men. And now, don't think you can work your way to heaven because all sin, all fall short of the glory of God. You need Jesus Christ. It's a big difference between true grace and false grace, cheap grace. So I don't think either one of those things any Christian would have problems with to abstain from idolatry, sexual immorality. The last two, which might really be one, someone might question as, is this ceremonial law from things strangled and from blood? 
Liberty from regulations of the written law does not mean we should neglect the spiritual law. And really, all these things have spiritual consequences. Idolatry, sexual immorality. Well, what about things strangled? When you strangle the animal, the Gentiles would strangle it to keep the blood in it so that when they ate it, they would eat the blood and drink the blood of the animal. There's a lot of significance to blood in the Scriptures. And this is more than just a ceremonial regulation. We may have a hard time understanding in American culture this precedes the law. It's before Moses and Sinai. If you go back to Genesis chapter 9, back to the time of Noah, in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 4, Noah is told by God. He says in verse 3, before that, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. It was not so before the flood. Whatever happens to the environment, whatever dramatic change now it's not enough to eat the fruit of the trees. They're going to need those amino acids, essential amino acids from the animal life. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, even as before. Now you can eat all living things. Verse 4, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You can hear this program and hundreds of other Bible study programs and find directions to our 10 a.m. Sunday service at the Madison, Connecticut Memorial Hall at shiarjashub.org. Pastor Greg's award-winning book, The Nature and Power of Prayer, is available on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Please join us next time for Shiar Jashub.